0: Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. The great thing about doing a podcast about luxury is that everyone has an opinion. I don't only have to speak to designers and makers. So today I'm delighted to be speaking with actress and author Sonia Wolga. Sonia has starred on Broadway in the original production of Frost Nixon. And she's been in way too many film and TV series to name. So I won't name all of them, but I will name a few. Lost, Sleeper Cell, CSI New York, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Flash Forward, Parenthood, and most recently, For All Mankind. Sonia, welcome and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. So good to be here.
0: The podcast is really about luxury, but I want to know really more about about you, about your work, Things that inspire you and so on. So let's start with you. What is it that you actually do for work?
1: Well, uh, when I'm lucky, I am acting. Um, My main job is being a mum to two small children who are six and eight. But my paid job is an actress and I write as well. That is yet to be remunerated, but that will change. Um, so at the moment I am, as you say, I'm on a show called For All Mankind. It's an Apple show, which is exciting, exciting to be part of a brand new, you know, an established brand, but a brand new sort of product for them. It's a show set in space and it's an alternate history show. So it imagines, um, it presupposes that Russia got to the moon first and that the Americans didn't. And so the Americans were playing catch up. And therefore poured money into NASA in a way that did not happen in real life. In real life, we got there. Americans got there, planted the flag, and everyone sort of sat back on their laurels for years. So it, it imagines that if it had all been accelerated and maintained that level of acceleration, so much technological advancement would have happened as a result of as a result of of having to play catch up, and so. Uh, And I play Molly Cobb. So I play the first American woman on the moon, which has been truly one of the great roles of my career. I I have just loved playing this woman. Um, So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
0: You've touched on a couple of things that I'd I'd love to pick up on. Yeah. One is this dramatic change for Apple. Mm. This is new territory. Mm. But also, we have been in, in odd times over the past year, mm. and the most dramatic change I'm sure you've seen being in it yourself is within entertainment industry. Mm. How has that affected you?
1: Well, we were at the end of last year, so 2020, February and March, we were finishing season two of the show. We had two episodes left to shoot. If I'm not wrong, we, were only, we only had 16 days left to shoot. And suddenly we're forced into lockdown. And like anyone, we all thought, all right, so we'll be locked up for a bit and then we'll come back in a month. And you know, they left the sets up. We literally walked away. I left, you know, a lovely candle, a cashmere blanket in my trailer. I just left my yoga mat, the whole thing. We didn't go back to work until the end of August. And we had the dubious accolade of being the first production in LA back at work. So it was very frightening. We were in the middle of a surge uh, that then turned out compared to what happened at Christmas, not to be a surge, but it was, the numbers were hectic. California was, I think at that point, if California had been a country, we'd have been the third highest mortality rate in the world. So it felt genuinely terrifying to go back to work. Now that said, Uh, Apple and Sony came up with all these protocols to save us. So they have built a lab at Sony, which is in LA. It's the studio that's closest to my house. It's a 25 minute drive, which is amazing. So I have to, when on the days that I work, I drive in and I get tested every day, even on my days off, even at weekends. So the actors and anyone that has direct contact with the actors are tested daily. Uh, you're all masked. The poor hair and makeup people look like they're about to perform surgery on you. They are in like gloves, face shields, gowns, you name it. Makeup, which used to be this cozy, wonderful trailer full of snacks and music, they have stripped it bare. It is literally the tools of the trade and that is it. There's barely even music playing. They just are trying to minimize any surface that... I mean, at that point too, we knew less about COVID. Now we know it's largely airborne, but surfaces uh, had been sort of kept to a minimum. So, um, and then on set, they have reduced the number of people on set. So, unless you are absolutely key to the scene, you have to wait outside. Uh, craft service has changed. You can't just help yourself to snacks. There is a man who will hand you a box to drink or your own little individual pack of almonds. Um, it's probably good for diet, actually, because it makes you much more self-conscious about saying, yeah, I'll have three bags of crisps, please. You only dare ask for one. So um, all of that said, my worry about going back to work was, I, I hope this doesn't just become about not catching COVID. I-, I hope we still are in a creative endeavor. I hope we're still making an amazing show. And it was very reassuring. It felt like after the first day where everyone was very nervous and we all saw how smoothly it went and how safe we all were, we we really dug in. And so we finished the show. We finished season two. We shot it in 28 days without anyone catching it. It takes much, much longer because you can only shoot 12 hours in order for there to be 12 hours for the whole set to be cleaned and sanitized. So it's incredibly expensive. I mean I'm not a producer, but I, I'm, I'm married to one, so <laughs> I know I know how much it's costing in order to make this work. Um, but that's what has to happen. So we finished season two, it's now airing and now we start season three. I go back to work next week. And it'll be interesting to see how many of those extreme protocols are still in place and what's been able to be dismantled or not or you know, how, how it is now.
0: Mm, wow. Well, I mean, just thinking that is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I remember going on to the Star Wars uh-huh. <laughs> um, set. Uh-huh. I mean, this is years ago in um, in Sydney. A friend was the props master and took us on a tour of the set and just remembering how busy it was. Right. You know, how many people were doing stuff, whether it was set dressing or yep. um, the extras or you yep. know, whoever the, the rig is. I'm just remembering how busy it is and just trying to visualise what you're working with where everything is so tightly controlled.
1: So, so streamlined. It's crazy. And it is, as you say, it's so collaborative. It's so, the actors are like the cherry on the cherry on the cake. The, the cake itself is made by 200, 300, 300, you know, 400 incredibly hardworking people. And then at the very, very end, the actors waltz in with their lines and their costumes. But it doesn't exist without those other
0: people. Is the whole... Production then completely different, just in terms of the way the sets are built, um, the management of the sets. That's you know, an how interesting you can get question. On,
1: or... I think the sets are still built. You know, the, I mean, they're built in in the huge studios that we work in. So I'm guessing they're built by carpenters wearing masks with massive amounts of ventilation. But in terms of you know, a writer's room usually in America is one big room with you know anywhere between four and ten people gathered around eating handfuls of chocolate almonds and chatting until, you know, two in the morning, and throwing story ideas around. There has not been an in-person writer's room for 13 months now. Every single writer's room happens on Zoom. And from every writer I've spoken to, and I'm married to one, and I have many, many friends who are writers, the Zoom writer's room is exhausting. The fatigue of staring at six people on a screen and trying to come up with ideas and trying to maintain that creativity. All of them have said you can't you can't actually do the room for more than two to three hours and then you gotta stop and then everyone has to go away and write on their own. So yes, there is a direct effect on on the creativity. And it does make me wonder, you know, as writers get more used to it, will this be the way it always happens? Will will we go back? My my hunch is we will, because most of the writers I know mourn and miss. The writers' rooms um, that you can't replace being together.
0: Yeah, I, that's also interesting because as I, I, I suppose, I often think about creativity, and you think about collaboration, but then mm. you also be, think about time on your own. Mm. And I wonder if this now is creating a new type of creativity, which is uh, you know it's forced isolation. Mm-hmm. There's screen time and no kind of inter- person-to-person interaction. So mm-hmm. I wonder what that's doing to the. Um, kind of creative process. Yes. Because, you you know, there's no option.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder too, and I'm, I'm curious what hybrids will emerge. I can't imagine it will stay this sequestered. But it, it is amazing to see all the options that we now have that I don't think we entertained before, the number of people who now find they can work from home and the number of people who now find that this element the human contact element is indispensable and we can't live without that in-person thing it'll be interesting to see
0: yeah now I mean the the kind of collaboration working you know you know people to people contact you know you you can't Really, really, of course you can't replace that. No. Um, I want to talk about Molly, and you mm. saw Molly a minute ago because she walked in front of the screen. Is
1: that the <laughs> name of your cat? I love it's... it. She's gorgeous. <laughs> it's
0: great. Um, I just find that the, the whole story I find quite fascinating. Um, and I'm jumping ahead a bit because I've been thinking about um, working in, the industry you're in about the moving mm. image. And I've been thinking about the luxury of this creation. Mm. Creating a TV series is a luxury. Mm. Um, the environment's luxurious, maybe not always in mm. the kind of mm. sense of being opulent, but luxury mm. in terms of it's something special. Mm. And I was wondering two things. One is what it feels like to play this trailblazer. Mm. And secondly, what it feels like to be immersed in that very different world
1: mm. well i think you're right to go back to your initial point it is luxurious to make a tv show there is you know the the vastness of our sets that they have built the surface of the moon that they have built an exact replica of the interior of of nasa that we have corridors and corridors to walk down in order to reach other people's offices. You know, that the moon set is is so haunting and so magnificent. It really is. There is a kind of reverence that everyone, a sort of silence that descends on everyone as you walk into that particular set. You have to keep it pristine because you can't have, for obvious reasons, footprints on the moon. So it limits the number of people that can actually walk on the surface. There's a wonderful guy whose job it is to sweep the surface of the moon, to brush away any footprints from there. So it's a set that very much belongs just to the actors when we're on it. And that's a real privilege because usually your set is inundated with hair and makeup and costume and all the people whose job it is to sort of attend to you. Um, so there's something luxurious in a way about about the moon set and how how magnificent it is and and um, very very special to work on that. Molly you know Molly was supposed to be a three episode arc. I joined as a guest star in season 1 thinking great, this will be fun. Three episodes, first woman on the moon, love it. Great. And then I think all of us sort of fell in love with Molly and what she brings. I think I was supposed to die in season one and here I am embarking on season three. So I think that's a win for everyone. She is, as you say, a trailblazer. She is so instinctive, so uh single-minded in her pursuit of getting to the moon. You know, can't stand authority, will not be told what to do, is excellent at what she does. Just excellent. And there's something so exciting about playing someone who is excellent. It's such a privilege to to do that. So I I love Molly. I love watching her grow. I'm I have a whole new set of challenges for season three that I can't tell you about because it will ruin season two for you. So But suffice to say that I am up to my eyeballs in research for this character on season three in a way that is amazing and a privilege to get to keep. It's one of the great things as an actor is you get to immerse in these new worlds every time you take on a new job. You know, flash forward, I played a pediatric surgeon. And so I went to the sinai and I shadowed a pediatric surgeon for a week and followed them into the children's wards. And it, it was one of the most humbling and devastating weeks of my life to spend time doing that. And, you know, I now have... um a layman's working knowledge of thoracic surgery, because that was something I had to do. So, and there's a joke about any actor that plays a doctor immediately thinks they are a doctor. I, I am not making that claim. I'm just using it as an example of what an amazing privilege it is that I can't think of any other. Possibly being a novelist, you dip, dive it deep into the world that you're you're creating. But that's a wonderful piece of what I get to do is to go in a deep, deep dive into this world and gather up the pieces of seaweed and flotsam and jetsam that I think belong to my character and then come back up to the surface, if you like, you know, clinging to what I've learned and hopefully amalgamating them into this person that I'm playing. And with Molly, that doesn't end. Quite often you do this deep dive at the beginning of creating a character and then you've made the character and then you just show up every season. And as long as you know your lines and as long as you haven't sort of you know changed unrecognizably, you keep doing that. Molly keeps changing and her circumstances keep changing, which means every season I have had to go and acquire a new skill set, set of information, um, you know, arena for her. And that's just an
0: amazing thing to get to do. I mean, that is luxurious. Yes, I mean, truly. having it's a privilege, isn't it, Absolutely. to be able to immerse yourself in a world that is created for you, yeah. in effect.
1: Yes, and a world that isn't isn't your own. I mean, I think part of luxury is the feeling of stepping aside from the humdrum. Right to me, it's it's it, um, inviting. Inviting something new in that maybe changes your feeling of time, stops you feeling so rushed, that slows time down, that distends a moment, that um, takes you out of your sort of regular sense of identity and who you are, that allows you a sort of wider sense of who you are. That's part of what I think of as luxury. And acting gives you gives me that i i am not a mum i am not making lunches i am not fetching anybody i'm not in all honesty thinking about my children which is what i do the rest of the time and it is such a, um an extraordinary thing to get to do that you know it, it really is
0: i mean i just you know keep thinking about you know in inhabiting a space that is not Your own? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm obviously not an actor, but I I just couldn't imagine how you would do that. But also the impact you have on others. Mm. It's not always about you, Mm. but it's it's about what you do Mm. that has that impact on others.
1: Yeah. I think it's been interesting. It's an interesting moment in history, in our history, to be playing a female trailblazer. Um, NASA has just had its first graduating year that is 50% women in real life in this year 2021 the first all female spacewalk happened while we were in lockdown it was you know a historic moment you know we 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 are riding a wave of women saying Enough of the patriarchy. Enough of being told we're not good enough and we shouldn't be paid the same. And that, you know, we're supposed to raise our children, clean our houses, and hold down jobs. Oh, and Zoom school at the same time. It's an interesting moment to play a woman as empowered as Molly is, and I feel very, very grateful for that. That I get to be her.
0: In season one of the of the podcast, the focus was on visionary women, mm. and so many of the women that that I spoke with you know, we're saying very much the same thing. This is time. It's, you know, it's way overdue and it, it's time.
1: It is time. Way overdue doesn't even c- cover it. It's, it's centuries, millennia, systemic <laughs> repression, which, you know, uh, to a degree one can look at and go, well, then it's a measure of our power that we have, n- that men, <laughs> forgive me, have needed to keep us down. You wouldn't bother If you felt that the enemy, as it were, weren't didn't need that, Um, it's a measure of how threatening we could be that we have been kept as
0: uh, appeased as we have. It's, I mean, well, to me, it's such an alien concept why anybody would um, repress anybody. Yeah, it's just such a bizarre. Yeah, just yes. the, the whole idea is just very alien to me.
1: I, I think it is to me too in that I don't look around and feel repressed. I mean, I, I don't. I feel very, very empowered in many ways. And I look around and I realize how much I don't even know about what I have um, imbibed, assimilated, assumed, taken for granted. Even in my marriage where I have a very hands-on great husband, but make no mistake, it's me that raises the children and does the groceries and puts the three meals a day on the table and then goes to work and does a show. He's very busy working as well. But it's the assumption that that's that's what the women do. I think this lockdown, you know, there've been many, many articles backing me up on this. It's it's really made it so clear um, how Endlessly overcompetent <laughs> women
0: are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right, absolutely. Um, many articles about concerns that th- this is 20 steps back for women yeah. because they've been forced back into a situation. Yeah that um, is, you know, cooking and and cleaning.
1: It is. But you know what? Any good general will tell you, sometimes you fall a few steps back in order to make the final push. I I, I truly believe this is a watershed moment for women. I really do. I think the women are going to burst out saying, all right, now we know that was the last time. Now we move it forward a little bit.
0: Well, you think about New Zealand and how well they've managed the pandemic and you kind of think, well... There you go. <laughs> Why aren't we doing that? Yeah. Look who their leader is. Look who is. their
1: leader is. Yep.
0: Totally. I wanted to get back to your work a bit because mm. um, I'm just, I'm kind of intrigued, interested. Mm. What's the most exciting thing about the work you do, about being, you know, an actor?
1: I think it's the unpredictability, honestly. It's knowing even this late in the game that your life can change in a phone call. You could be, I can be making my umpteenth pack lunch and wondering what the next gig will be. And somewhere in my heart feeling like, yeah, I, that was probably the last one. I'll probably never work again. I mean, that just never goes away. I don't know the actor. Maybe Jennifer Lawrence wakes up and doesn't worry about this, but I don't know the actor that doesn't secretly think that was their last gig every time. So to get that email or that phone call for some audition that you lobbed out into the universe or some remote meeting that you took or some script that came in unsolicited, to get the call going, Okay, it's happening, they've made the offer. You need to be in Toronto in three weeks' time. You'll be there for four months, and you'll be playing, you know, a blind beggar for that time. It's 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 wonderful. It's terrifying to live like this. It means that still, you know, and I my family still aren't used to this, that after twenty something years of doing this, I still can't make plans for a summer vacation. I still can't promise to join you in Tuscany next summer. I can't even promise you where we'll be for christmas i i can't do that i i never i have not been able to live that way since i got this job i can barely make a plan for half term which is you know for me week, 4 weeks away that's sort of a hard way to live um it's why i think people in the industry tend to go out with or marry people within the industry because it takes someone incredibly understanding who uh, gets that there's just no point booking that lovely Greek villa for summer 2023 there's not because there's just no guarantee of where you'll be so that unpredictability I think like anything valuable is both extraordinary and really hard to live with and um, you know Davy's working on a pilot right now that if it gets picked up would mean we'd be or he'd be shooting in Bulgaria next year and, uh, you know, we keep joking about how, what a great capital Sophia is and how fun it'll be. And it's all fun and games until it's real. And, but again, there's like, what's the point in losing sleep over this? We don't know. Or maybe I'll have a job that also shoots in Bulgaria. Maybe his pilot won't go. It's, there's so many variables that it's not worth it. But there is something interesting in looking around at our house and our life and being like, well, seize the moment, enjoy it. 'Cause I just don't know how long any of it lasts at any given moment. So what inspires you then? I get my inspiration from so many places. It's an interesting question. What inspires me in my daily life when I work? When I Just
0: listening to the, the you know the story. Yeah. You know, it it there's a sense of excitement. Mm. There's a sense of unknown. Mm. I know you're an avid reader. Yeah. I know you love books. Yeah.
1: I, I was about to say, I think what reliably inspires me, distracts me, um, entertains me more than anything else is books is reading. I mean, I, I've, I've never read more than I have during this lockdown, apart from three years at Oxford where <laughs> all I did was read, but I read. I mean, I think I read 60 or 70 books last year. That's, you know, more than one a week. And, um, and I can tell you about every one of them. I can, that each one of them carried me through a curve or an inflection of that week or a low point or a high point. Uh, You know, I, I think the combination of books and being outside, I mean, we have this we're so fortunate to live in Malibu we have this beautiful big garden and it's sort of fringed by trees and then through the trees you see the ocean beyond and it's it just doesn't get old i mean every friend i have who comes here walks in and and you know your breath is momentarily taken away and they most of them turn to me saying do you do you forget to see this and i say never honestly truthfully not one morning have i not come down and made my cup of tea And not thought, wow, just look at that. There's, there's the Pacific just laid out like a wedding cake in front of me and the green grass and the, you know, irises growing. So, I mean, although it sounds sort of cheesy, maybe I, I do think my garden and my books, uh, carry, have certainly carried me through this year in a way that was truly sustaining
0: the the idea of nature is one i think that resonates with so many people now mm. um having experienced a year of no train mm. no trains no planes yes no autumn planes trains, autumn- yeah <laughs> we're on the river mm. and there's nothing yeah not dissimilar it's a release from everything else there are birds and they're ducks and they're geese and yeah. you know they're all flying around and doing you know it's not the same. It's so much more peaceful and tranquil without planes going over every six seconds.
1: Yeah, and I, I totally and and maybe you found this too. I find it luxurious to use your word to witness nature, to actually watch the little lemon tree that we have go from a blossom through to the tiny little sour, inedible lemons to the like huge, brimming. Maya lemons that it's now bursting with. And, you know, there's a rabbits that have started living in our garden. So there's bunnies just absolutely everywhere. And they started, you know, the size of my palm, and they're now, you know, half my forearm leaping across our garden. And I'm less thrilled about them now because they eat our plants. But I that has been an extraordinary thing. I don't think I used to notice that spring was coming until spring had sprung and and to smell it and watch it emerge and see what's happening after each rain, I, that, that's living in a different rhythm that is truly luxurious. I, I don't relish going back to living in a more accelerated way. I, I really loved
0: the pace of this in many ways. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just thinking so amazing for the kids. Yeah. The Easter bunnies on your doorstep. On our
1: doorstep. They can't believe it. I know. We're going to Palm Springs. We rented a little Airbnb for Easter and the kids are terrified that the Easter bunnies are not going to find them. (laughs)
0: I've Ah, I've
1: explained it's like Father Christmas. He knows just where they
0: are. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk a little bit about science fiction Mm -hmm. because I'm obviously obsessed. Um, (laughs) Why do you think science fiction resonates with so many people? Especially these types of stories of, you know, Battlestar Galactica, of which the producer also is producing. That's
1: right. Ron Moore wrote Battlestar Galactica.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that Star Trek, Star Wars, all, you know, Mm -hmm. these programs that focus on a world millions of millions of miles away. Why do you think that resonates so much with us?
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? You know, I'm not a sci-fi girl and, and at all, really. It's not a genre I new. I watched Battlestar and thought it was wonderful. I think someone once described it as the West Wing in space, and, and that w- was that felt accurate to me and was part was largely why I, I loved it so much. I think I think there's something about, you know, how curious we are as a species. That that humankind is is just it's why we've got to the top of the food chain is this relentless curiosity, this pushing ourselves to the utmost reaches of what we're capable of. So in a way to put man at the absolute extremity of his capacity, to, to put us at, you know, it's what they call it, right? The final frontier to, to, to like, to put us at that complete furthest push of what we're capable of, it's a bit like exploring the bottom of the ocean it's it's not our habitat. we are not meant to be here. We don't have gills. we don't have the capacity to breathe or walk in you know zero g. and to do that and then watch man behave normally at those extremities, I think is just this amazing combination of the humdrum. The, the, the quotidian, you know, the people still fighting and fucking or excuse me, having sex. I don't know. We allowed to swear on your podcast. Um, sure. and, and bickering, goes. great bickering and having ambitions and feeling passed over and all these incredibly human base, if you like, instincts to watch them play out, even against this vast backdrop, I think is sort of the ultimate story. It's the ultimate soap opera. The stakes couldn't be higher. And yet here we are still with our tiny petty concerns
0: about does he love Mm. me or doesn't he?
1: You know, I I think that's such an interesting juxtaposition. I
0: really do. Not being um, a sci-fi fan, how does that feel? Or not kind of Mm. um, inhabiting that world? How does that then feel playing a character that is, you know, part of that genre? Because
1: I don't think, you know, and this is true for any genre that you're in, you don't know you're in a genre. Molly Cobb doesn't know she's in a sci-fi story. Molly Cobb wants to get to the moon. She wants to be the first woman on the moon. And then they tell her to come back and she's like, "Uh uh-uh, not so fast. There's ice up here and I am going to be the woman to find it. And then she comes back and now she's in NASA and in all kinds of trouble in season two. Uh, So, you know, she doesn't know she's in a sci-fi show. I I know, and I don't even think of it as a sci-fi show. I think of it as a human story that it's my responsibility to tell as honestly and groundedly as possible. Um, That's what hopefully what people are responding to is an authenticity of emotion, not anything else. Yeah, I
0: was- was, (laughs) After I said it, I just thought, well, that's quite a stupid question. No. Because if you thought you were in a sci-fi show, you wouldn't be believable as the character. Right, right. Yeah. I wanted to touch upon a, a little bit about the books you like. Mm. You've just said you've read 60 of them over the past year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's quite a lot of books. That's a lot of books. Um, What are the ones that resonate with you the most?
1: Well, I have a very, very wide-ranging taste. Um. I think one of the hallmarks of it would be, I love digging out old books that maybe got overlooked at their time. Um, I love reading widely and internationally. I, I love, you know, translations of Italian books. I love. Uh, I just ordered, so I haven't read it yet, but it's a seventeenth-century Japanese uh, book that was one of the first Japanese novels that I'm really looking forward to starting. I. So, I guess one of the things that I love is reading stories, particularly at the moment. I like stories set in England. This is, I'm talking very specifically to right now. I'm, I'm so homesick. I was saying this to you, I think, before we started recording. I haven't been in London for coming up for two years. And I, I have, I don't think ever missed it more. I certainly have never gone this long without going home. And so I find myself very drawn to books that are set in England. Interestingly, not not contemporary. I sort of don't want to read about 2019 very much or 2020 or certainly not what we're living through. I would rather go further back. So, you know, books in the 20s, in the 30s, straight after the war, I have found those really compelling. And maybe because there is a parallel between the lives of compromise, um, of sort of making do, of shortage, of women uh, not yet emancipated or or on the verge of it. I think those have been stories that I've been really drawn to. Um, I read a wonderful book this year called Old Filth by a woman called Jane Gardam. Old filth is the name of a judge and he's at the end of his life and it's him looking back on his life and he lived in Hong Kong and he appeared to have had um, filth stands for failed in london try hong kong that was what the acronym right. stood for um, <laughs> and he appeared to have on the surface this sort of boring predictable life happily married no kids and the story is interspersed with people commenting on, oh, old Phils died. Oh, that's about, oh, he had an easy life. And then it cuts to the chapters of this extraordinary, um, checkered, dark, difficult, heartbreaking life that he had that he he never let show on the surface. And um, it's a portrait of a colonial childhood and loneliness of it. And, um, and the sort of stiff upper lip and the reserve Uh, Which is something that, you know, is true of many members of my family my grandparents, my mum. None of them were born in England. All of them were educated back in England whilst being raised in, you know, my mum in Nairobi, for instance. Um, So I I loved it. And I was surprised that I loved it. I was surprised that a book about an old white man (laughs) who grew up in, you know, who spent the end of his days in Hong Kong, I was surprised that had any draw for me. And yet I found it a deeply, um, beautiful and and sort of heartbreaking book. And then another book that I read a few months ago that I loved is an Italian book. It's called A Girl Returned. And the author is Donatella di Pietrantonio. And it's a slight little book about a girl who is given away by her mother to another family and is raised by another family that lives only 30 miles away and at 15, she is inexplicably given back to her birth mother. The mother who has raised her doesn't want her anymore and gives her back. So she is a girl returned to her original birth family. And she's been raised by the seaside as an only child in this sort of rather pri- privileged, lovely way. And she's dumped back into the heart of peasant Italian family with feral brothers and sisters who either want to kiss her or maybe have sex with her and... Uh, the different food and the different smells and the bewilderment and the loss. And it's a beautiful, beautiful little book that that uh, I don't think many people know about. So those are, mm. that gives you an idea of how wide ranging my taste is.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, a book that you might find um a good read mm. is the textures of silence oh i don't know it by a south african or- author and his name is gordon forster uh-huh. it's about this child who grows up i won't obviously tell you too much but the stories are told by the people around him mm. it's a beautifully told story about not very pleasant situation
1: mm. Wonderful. Okay, great. I love it. That sounds great. I love recommendations. I take them from everyone and anywhere. Another a podcast that if any of your listeners are readers, that I highly recommend that's wonderful is called Backlisted. And it's two English guys who's who once a week do this wonderful podcast and they talk about old books that deserve a second life, that 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 got perhaps overlooked in their day and people should know about, people should read, and they discuss them in depth. And it's wonderful. I Invariably, I mean, it's dangerous to listen to it while you're driving because I'm always like, oh, wait, what? The constant nymph. Okay, how do I write that down? Uh, I sort of leave myself weird voice memos in the car and try and create some way of remembering them. But... um, Anyway, I, I backlisted is a fantastic podcast. Oh, okay,
0: Jessica Hellfand, who I who um, I interviewed before, is an avid reader. Mm. And she was talking about something not dissimilar mm. to you, um, just about finding all these books that she's now just started yeah. to kind of become acquainted with. So we've got a little bit of time left, not much, and I wanted to talk about the world, mm-hmm. um, our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and issues that are impacting on us. And I know we've spoken about kind of nature and about being, you know, absorbed by the beauty of things that we now appreciate probably more than we ever did. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you thought about kind of issues around sustainability and sustainable practice. Mm. I mean, we're going from one extreme to the other here.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, listen, it's, it's the only issue, isn't it? For right now, it just feels like we can't, we can't address anything until we've guaranteed that we have a planet to even have an equal footing on or to address racism on or to address the patriarchy on. Uh, that feels um, just crushingly obvious. And and it was um, a huge part of the many unendurable things we went through under a Trump presidency was watching that just get shelved, watching science disappear, watching any credibility um, founder. It felt like we were in medieval times. It felt like that all this all this knowledge was about to get lost. and thankfully, that's not where we are, and science has prevailed. And here we are a year in with a vaccine or you know, multiple vaccines to choose from. Um, but to your point, I, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by looking at my kids and the school they're at here. I mean, we're in California, which is, you know, the heart of tech land. Uh, The brightest and the greatest brains here, I think are being directed towards that. California has been, you know, pioneering electric cars and, uh, you know, sustainable ways in some ways. And in other ways, we're way behind the curve. I mean, we were in Canada last year or not last year, the year before, um, shooting my husband's show. And we were blown away by how sophisticated their recycling is, for example. How absolutely pristine um, uh, Vancouver is as a city. How just instinctively aware the Canadians are of what they have and what they need to protect. So we have a long way to go. But I look at my little ones who... Know what it is to live in LA and know what it is to have to protect water. Know that you can't keep the tap running when you brush your teeth in this, in this town. Um, uh, you know, Billy's doing a project right now about how to raise awareness for the oceans and it's sort of doing a little bake sale. So, you know, one muffin at a time, she's going to clean the planet up, which is great. But yes, I, I, I care. I care deeply as anyone with a heartbeat does, and as anyone with children I think
0: does thinking about uh, where we started um, I mean I know we started about uh talking about you and mm. about your work, but we also then touched upon this idea of luxury and luxury within your workplace, mm. and I was wondering what your luxury is mm.
1: time is my luxury i uh
0: giving myself
1: time to do anything, have a bath, make dinner, uh, get home, go home slowly. I I think this year has really, really taught me that. Time alone, time with my husband on our own, which is absolutely non-existent since this happened. Um, Time with a friend uh, giving yourself permission to make a call that lasts, you know, 25, 30, 45 minutes, not multitasking, just doing one thing and doing it with full presence and full heart. I, you know, I love a scented candle and a cashmere sweater as much as the next girl. I really do. Don't get me wrong. Um, I love, you know, soft things. I love things that engage the senses. I love great, great food. I love a beautiful book. I love clothes. I, I, I am a, a deep lover and believer in luxury. But if I'm really honest, at the root of the root, the greatest luxury that I can give myself is time.
0: Well, I don't know a better way to end
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> Good.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed our chat. Yeah, um, me too. And um, oh, I, j- I can't wait to listen to it back. Firstly, to get some book reviews <laughs> and recommendations. <laughs> um, and secondly, to kind of revisit Molly uh, um, in, in her world. Because it just, um, as I said earlier, it's an amazing thing to be able to do is mm. kind of communicate a story about somebody who made such a difference mm. in her world.
1: Well, thank you, Sean. This was such a pleasure. So lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Sonia. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.